0: Hello and welcome back to the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast where we talk about being a bicycle mechanic and what it's like. So I would like to encourage you to comment and leave any feedback at the thebicyclemechanicspodcast at gmail.com or check out some photos of some of the stories on the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast on Instagram. So I have kind of a little bit of a shorter show today maybe. We're going to kind of do two, two sections here. We're going to do Um, One that I call Shop Stuff. Um, I also call it Shop Something Else with an SH. that ends in a T. And we're also, I'm going to tell you a story about the time, the two times that I got to work uh, the tour of China in 1995 and 1996. So let's go ahead and kick it off with Shop Stuff. And I kind of titled this one, Have You Ever? So and this is gonna be some pretty relatable stuff to a lot, of, uh, a lot of folks who have worked in bike shops for a long time or even a short time. Uh, these are kind of some things that come up pretty often. So kind of funny little stories in there with them. So let's get started here. Um, have you ever, have you ever gotten mad about someone who couldn't fix their own flat? Uh, a tube change, how hard can it be? Uh, if you're going to own and ride a bicycle, and if you are physically and mentally capable, you need to learn how to do it. And this one really gets under the skin of a lot of people I've worked with, including myself. Uh, some days it bothers me more than others, but it's definitely one of those top things that, that kind of makes us, uh, as bicycle mechanics, can make us a little surly. Um, uh, sometimes customers would just believe it's their, their given right to have you, the shop tech, fix that flat while they wait when they can't do it themselves. Especially, you know, this really only applies if somebody is obviously physically and mentally capable to do this. There are some people who can't do it, and if they aren't, that's a different thing, that's fine. So moving forward, once once in a shop I worked at, um, my coworker uh, told me a story about something that happened the day before, um, the day before. He worked Sundays. Uh, Typically, and I would work on Mondays with him and he would tell me some stories about Sunday Um, And if you've ever worked in retail or in a restaurant, which is kind of close to retail um, You know that people that that tend to come in on Sundays are a little bit of a different breed Um, Not everyone, but a a big percentage are a different breed than the folks who come in on Saturday or Friday (laughs) so he was working in the shop on Sunday by himself, he was the only tech, and an able-bodied, able-bodied uh, 40-something-year-old rider uh, came in um, on a really nice road bike, uh, and he came in with a flat. Um, the tech, uh, was he was really busy uh, at the time, it's often how Sundays are, it's kind of putting out fires and, and trying to help with, with selling of bikes and whatnot. Um, so he was kind of working on a few other emergencies, quotations, um, And he told the customer, uh, told this guy on this really nice road bike that that he couldn't do it right away. Uh, To which the customer replied, um, he said, I'm kind of in the middle of a ride here uh, while pointing with both hands to his helmet. Um, That alone would probably trigger a lot of bicycle mechanics to become quite angry. And my coworker who worked on Sunday became quite angry. and he eventually did take care of the guy, but he was pretty annoyed by this guy. So, so often at this shop on, on Mondays when we got to work together again, uh, when I would come into work, he would tell me the stories about things that happened on Sunday, kind of get me caught up. And when he told me this story, um, my first thought was, uh, was about the uh, Pink Panther uh, movies with Peter Sellers um, playing Inspector Clouseau and there's a scene in one of the movies where he somehow destroys a uh, a piano, um, and the lady standing next to him says, "That was a priceless Steinway," and to that uh, he says, "Not anymore." <laughs> so that was kind of what I thought when the guy said, "I'm kind of in the middle of a ride here." I I would have replied, "Not anymore," of course. I, I wouldn't probably really say that but I would probably get in trouble if I did but you know there's always those things we want to say to a customer that we come up with afterwards and the things that we actually do say so we do like to keep our jobs even though some days uh, it can be difficult. So So the next little story of have you ever is is one that probably not everyone has experienced but I have had the pleasure of experiencing it I believe twice um, so have you ever had a customer bring you a rear hub with a free wheel still on it after they cut out the wheel so how did you how do you get it off uh, without the leverage of a complete wheel it's pretty much impossible um, so what you do and what I learned to do when this happens was you lace up uh, the non-drive side of the hub to a rim and then you can get get it in a vise and twist easy right well kind of um lacing it up can be a little bit of a challenge because of that you have to bend the the spokes a bit to uh you know lace up just half the wheel because you can't can't get a spoke through the side of the hub where the the free wheel is of course because there's not enough room there so i've seen this done twice actually i've never actually done it myself but it it kind of happened um early in my bicycle me- mechanic career and I was the low man on the on the totem pole. Um, so I kind of just watched and got to uh, see how this was done. So the first time it worked like a charm. Um, my friend uh, Doug Hatfield, who worked at the USA Cycling Center um, with the uh, national team back then, uh, I've seen him do it before when we worked in a shop together, before he worked for GT or Mongoose or Santa Cruz. Um, uh, mountain bike team like he does now. Um, he's definitely on a higher level of, uh, of being a bicycle mechanic than a lot of us. Um, so the the second time I saw it was in Colorado Springs um, at the Olympic Training Center, and once again it was Doug who had to do it. So a friend of a rider who rode with Doug sometimes. Um, his name was Fred Veach. He was a very tall, very tall man, kind of a big man. He wasn't. He wasn't fat, but he was tall. I think he might have been maybe six, 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 seven. Um, and I remember, I remember sometimes I would draft um, off of Fred, uh, and it was kind of a free ride for me because he's about over a foot taller than me and weighs about a hundred pounds more than I do. So, uh, and then when we would trade off, and he would he would um, try to draft at me, and he would just yell at me, you know, "You're not doing me any good." Uh, not much I can do about that. Anyway, uh, Fred's friend, Dave, um, had cut out his old rim and left the freewheel on, screwed onto the hub. So so Doug, once again, laced up the non-drive side of the hub to a rim and stuck it in the vise. Um, the twist leverage can do some strange things to, to bike parts. Um, so... What happens when he does this with this hub is that half of the the hub moves and the other half does not. So the freewheel does break loose, uh, but now the words Dura Ace, because it was a Shimano Dura Ace rear hub, um, don't line up anymore because the hub is not, is twisted in the middle with the sign, some heavy signs of aluminum distress. Um, pretty funny, um, <laughs> pretty funny to see that, and obviously the hub was not usable after that. So, so one, of my, one of my favorites, and that's a little sarcasm, not favorites, is when a customer tells you a job should be pretty easy and it shouldn't take very long. Um, a good friend of mine, Wayne Culpepper, who I worked with uh, early on in a bike shop, um, used to tell people if they'd say that, the, that if it's so easy, um, you just know, you should know that we do sell a lot of tools um, and you can uh, purchase them and do the job yourself. Um, he would always point over to the tool wall, which we always had lots of tools for sale, and uh, typically people didn't really like that. Um, one time when I was working in the shop, a guy uh, a guy once told us that uh, the assembly of his new mail order road bike uh, shouldn't take us long since it was Shimano Ultegra. Um, I remember commenting to my coworker that he should have bought the one that had Durace uh, since it would probably build itself. Um, Needless to say, this, this gentleman, um, when we started trying to put his bike together, discovered that his fork was damaged uh, right out of the box. Uh, so we sent him off to deal with the mail order company himself to get a new fork. So, so my next story is one. I don't know if everybody's done this, but I've only done it once. Um, and have you ever done work on a bike and realized it was the wrong bike for that specific work to be done? So the answer for me is of course yes I have. Uh one one early morning around 7:30 a.m. I was starting my day um and I I pulled the work tickets uh for the day um, and there was a red trek uh red and black trek mountain bike. Um I don't remember the model but I uh I did pull down a bike that matched uh the work order description but not the work order number. I did the work on it uh which if I recall included some accessory installs as well as some adjustments and I think a rear tire. Um, I remember thinking when I was working on the bike, uh, why do they want a new rear tire? This one seems fine. So I did the work anyway and later that day I was helping a a customer picking up his bike and I saw the the claim check and pulled down the the red and black track um, that I had worked on hours earlier And he says, "Um, that's not my bike. Well, 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 his bike was still hanging untouched, of course. It was the same make, model, color, and size of the bike I thought was his. I mean, what are the chances of having two of the same, pretty much exact bike in a shop at the same time? Not very high. Of course, I could have avoided that by reading the, the work order number, but I didn't. (laughs) So I worked fast and swapped over the accessories in the rear tire to his his black and red Trek mountain bike. Uh, Problem solved. Uh, A problem I had created. Uh, We've all done it if you've worked on bicycles long enough. Um, So have you ever damaged a customer's bicycle while working on it? And the answer to that is, of course, yes, is my answer. Um, Not very often, but the worst one. Um, was once while i was working at wheelsmith uh, bicycle shop in palo alto Uh, i was rebuilding a light speed a customer had just gotten back uh, from the paint shop Uh, it was a beautiful yellow and orange color kind of a fade it was super custom um, and it had i think it had all campy c record on it or something Um, as i completed the build i was doing a final adjustment on the headset i think you can tell where this is going Uh, Back then, uh, the stems were were all quill style, so the headset required two large uh, 32 millimeter open-end wrenches to adjust it. Well, while I was adjusting it, one of the wrenches slipped out of my hand and took a really nice chip out of the paint on the top tube right where a rider would look down, right there in front of him, straight down. Uh, I tried to paint match it but no go it was too custom of a job um, and I, I got help from one of the uh, the service writers um, at the shop at the time and we couldn't really match the paint and and I felt so bad um, so the customer um, apparently when he picked up the bike uh, later in the week noticed uh, just as the bike was being wheeled around the corner uh, for him to pick it up um, I don't know whatever happened with that. Um, I was never told what happened after that, but I felt pretty bad. It wasn't a huge chip, but not cool. Um, <laughs> and I don't know what what most shops would do in that case. Do you give him the work for free? Do you send it out and get it repainted? I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, my last little story here is, uh, it's kind of one that I've seen done Probably several times and I'm pretty sure I've done it, but not with really catastrophic um, uh, Disasters happening at the end of it, but uh, Once uh, a coworker, worker um, this is probably the worst of this uh, didn't what happened He didn't tighten the seat post clamp enough when he was building a bike um, and the bike basically slid off the post um, It hit the floor and it did have both wheels on and it bounced uh, top tube first right into the work stand post. A uh, big old dent in the top tube, at least. Uh, at least it didn't belong to a customer. Um, it was floor stock, so it was still a bummer. Um, and I have seen lots of bikes drop that way, but that was probably the worst because sometimes when they're dropped, they don't have the wheel in and it may not be as big an issue, but this one kind of bounced right into that big steel pole for the, for the bike stand. It was, it was pretty awful. I don't think the the owner of the shop was was not impressed. So those are those are kind of the the stories that came to me first about the the how have you ever. So if anyone out there has has a a good story um, that would kind of go along those lines, you could shoot me an email. And I would definitely share it on the show, um, uh, the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast at Gmail dot com. So um, we're gonna kind of move into my next story, my final story um kind of a uh, another story from the road it's about the tour of china uh, that i was fortunate enough to work in 1995 and again in 1996 i believe it was the only two years that the race um, that the race took place um so when the opportunity came up to uh to wrench for uh, a u.s pro team kind of a composite team composed of of several racers that i knew um, and uh, Sean Petty was the team director. Um, I was I was up for it for sure. Um, the year was 1995. Um, I had finished my first season as the Chevrolet LA Sheriff Cycling Team mechanic. I um, uh, don't remember exactly how I got the job and and who called me, but but I ended up there. Um, the race took place, I believe, in October, um, and the road race season in the states was pretty much over by then. Um, So I remember we did have uh, at least one racer from our team, from the Chevrolet L.A. Sheriff's team on this team uh, for the Tour of China, and that was Steve Haig. Some of the other racers I remember, um, I remember for sure we had Andy Bishop. Uh, He was formerly on Motorola, uh, the team that 7-Eleven kind of changed sponsorship from. Um, Andy was a super, uh, super cool guy. He... He told me some good stories uh, during transfer days and stuff at the race about racing in Europe. Um, one that kind of stuck with me was that uh, about racing in the mountains um, in Europe, and the, the descents were pretty hairy. And and at times, because um, they would they would be descending for quite a t- quite some time. If you've ever ridden in those kind of mountains, he he mentioned when when the Colombians uh, first started racing in Europe, they could fly up the hills, but but he'd have to, to dodge them on the way down because they didn't yet, they hadn't yet mastered the the descending part of the mountain equation. So back to the kind of the tour of China. The, one of the strangest uh, things about this race was that the fact that it was sponsored by a cigarette company, uh, Kent Cigarettes. So it was the Kent tour of China. Um, I remember arriving in Hong Kong, um, after a long flight about 13 hours from, uh, from LAX I believe. Uh, we were in Hong Kong for about four days or so. Um, Steve Haig uh, took the, the lead, took the yellow jersey early and held it until the final time trial um, when he lost to, I forget, it doesn't matter because they weren't on my team. Um, <laughs> Hong, Kong, uh, Hong Kong was amazing uh, even though uh, by now I had traveled all over for the US uh, all over the US and Europe um, at one point even a five-week trip to South Africa um, it was so different than any of these places I had ever been um, so in 1995 China uh, not many people in not many people owned uh, automobiles at the time um, there were lots of bicycles lots of people walking and lots of uh, buses three-wheeled bikes were used as cargo carriers. Um, In 1996, when we were in Hong Kong, um, a bunch of the racers went out to a club. Uh, I typically wouldn't hang out with the racers when they would go out. um, I would go hang out with uh, the other mechanics usually, um, other staff members. Um, So I um, usually went to a bar um, for my downtime, going to a dancing club, um, never really uh, did it for me. But so they all went out out to a club and the the next I remember the next morning at breakfast, I remember um, seeing seeing what looked like uh, some kind of dried up blood, um, like uh, right on the outside of one of our racers ears. I think it was uh, Trent Klasna and I didn't think much of it at first, you know, but I did see it and I was like, oh, that's kind of strange. So as the as the breakfast went on, which is. The way the breakfast work on at stage races for anybody who hasn't worked one as a mechanic um, is you're usually in a really big, uh, really large room, and it's kind of a buffet style. And there's tables, and the racers usually sit at their own team tables, but sometimes they kind of intermingle because everybody kind of knows each other. So, um, so more more uh, more of the racers kind of started to show up um, at the breakfast uh, as they got up and. And kind of more of the story kind of came out as to what happened and why why Trent, uh, Trent had some blood, uh, dried blood on his ear. Uh, so the story goes, there was a, a large group of racers uh, who went out to the dance club, like I said, and I guess one of the racers got a little too touchy uh, with one of the local girls, um, maybe too much to drink, uh, probably. So uh, she ran off um, and she came back with like 15 local local dudes who reportedly pummeled all the racers, except, of course, for the one who jumped behind a couch or something. I'm not going to mention his name. Um, But uh, the racers were, uh, the races were somewhat forgettable as a race mechanic uh, because the backdrop was so, so different than any race I had ever worked. Um, Of course, it was the only time that, you know, a bunch of racers got beat up uh, in a, a dance club that I remember Um, at least uh, when I worked in the US, never had that happen. Um, So this race was really different, like I said, because the the backdrop was so different. Um, Some examples of this would be kind of, uh, we spent a couple of hours in an open air market one day at at Guangzhou. Um, Lots of meat for sale in the form of chickens, fish, and probably other things I didn't recognize, um, both live and dead animals um i remember at one point seeing a vat of eels uh, alive and looking pretty darn slimy as they slithered around in a in a bowl um, on a table i remember being pretty grossed out Um, this is not something that you'll see in the u.s or even europe as as far as i know Um, i know you don't see it in the u.s pretty sure not europe Uh, the place seemed kind of unsanitary and and i would say definitely unregulated one of the other things I remember seeing in China were uh, food carts, um, which were uh, with they had some weird stuff there. One of them had a plucked and roasted sparrow on a stick, um, and I get I guess you're supposed to eat the whole thing, like the beak and all, because it's been roasted, so it kind of softens up. Um, sort of gross, but uh, people were buying them and eating them. I certainly was not. Um, uh, at the races, you'd, you'd see the normal crowd barrier, uh, along the course, but it was weird because the people would stand like six to 10 feet behind the barrier and they had guards, uh, standing at the barrier and it was obvious the people standing up to 10 feet away from the barriers were afraid of the guards. Uh, it was really strange. Um, the, the air quality was terrible, especially in Shanghai. It was thick with pollution, um. It made your throat sore and your eyes water. Uh, many of us came, came home with a cough. Uh, I didn't get, uh, get one the first year, but the next year um, I brought home my very own cough that lasted for about five weeks. Uh, slowly going away, I can't imagine uh, racing in that air at all. Um, at, at one point during a race, uh, we passed through a 15-lane toll booth on a huge highway that was still somewhat under construction. Uh, so in 19, in 95, 1995 and 1996, I don't think, like I said, many people had cars, but today they do, and that empty road is now a traffic jam. So as, as race mechanics, we kind of we kind of get to know how good the roads are in different countries by how many flats uh, we service during a race. And as an example, um, in Europe, uh, a race in Italy, you're probably going to get some flats. Um, Race in Germany, maybe a little bit less. Um, Switzerland, maybe none. Um, I did some races in Switzerland. I think over all the years that I I uh, did team support in Switzerland, I think my right racers only got one flat and uh, all the, the roads were so smooth and clean and nice. And, and uh, in China, on one stage, uh, there were so many rocks in the road. Every team seemed to get at least two flats, at least. Some got as many as five. Um, but this was all within like a three mile stretch of road going through like one of the, the smaller villages. It was crazy. Uh, some teams were fixing flats inside the caravan car because they got so many. Um, it was pretty bad. So I remember the, one of the guys coming over the race radio and that was like working the the commissar's car. And he basically mentioned that he had requested that that part of the road be cleaned off, but apparently it hadn't. Um, and it kind of showed and the rocks were big and they were sharp and they were all over in that road so um the other thing about the cars they gave us uh for the caravan were so old and worn out that uh when we made a turn the car seemed to lean to one side um much more than it should Um, a lot of squeaking and movement in the shocks and suspension linkage it was pretty bad um so these these two trips to China remain in my memory as one of the most entertaining and eye-opening trips of my race mechanic career. They were well run, um, since it was uh, Mike Plant and the the crew running around them, the same crew that had done the Tour du Pont on the East Coast uh, for years, and remember, who, and will be remembered as a premier cycling event in the U.S. for for anyone working the circuit or following racing during that time. Um, while in China, I was able to visit the Tiananmen Square. Um, I enjoyed uh, a tour of the Lost City. I got to see the Great Wall. Um, and got to enjoy uh, some of the best local food I've experienced on a race trip. Um, I didn't eat the sparrow though. I'll probably uh, never make it back to China, but it's a trip that I'll never forget. And so with that story, I'll kind of end it for this time around and I would like to thank you for listening all of you that are listening from wherever you might be whatever bike you might be working on at the time and I would invite you to join us again in a couple weeks I'm not sure what we're going to have on the show but I'm trying to make sure it's entertaining and in the meantime if you have any questions or comments concerns grievances any of the above don't hesitate to email me at the podcast at gmail.com and you can check us out Bicycle Mechanics podcast on Instagram. Thanks for listening.